0: As you can see by our opening slide this morning, our Christmas service is titled Journey Through Bethlehem. And even as I say the word Bethlehem, I'm kind of curious what images or thoughts run through your mind. Perhaps you think about the star that directs the wise men to Bethlehem, perhaps you think about the gifts that they gave, the shepherds who were in the region of Bethlehem, and they hear the pronouncement that Jesus has been born. Maybe you think of Mary and Joseph and the manger. Certainly, when we think about Bethlehem, we often think about the birthplace of Jesus, and rightfully so. That was the most significant event that happened in Bethlehem. And yet, what I want to do this morning, what you might not know is that actually Bethlehem is the birthplace of some key Old Testament characters. And these Old Testament characters actually anticipate or prepare for the arrival of Jesus Christ. They're actually in Jesus' line. When Jesus is introduced to us in Matthew chapter one, the names of these other men from Bethlehem also show up, culminating in the arrival of Christ. And so what we're going to do today is just a little bit different. Bethlehem is going to be kind of like our anchor point. They share a common geographical location. Yes, these guys are related to Jesus. Yes, but there's even more than that. As we study these men from Bethlehem, We're going to see how their work and their lives anticipate the arrival of Christ. This whole service is going to crescendo with Jesus. And that's who we're here to worship this morning, right? The arrival of Christ into this world. And yes, I just want us to know this morning that the story of Christ doesn't begin in Matthew chapter 1. From times of old, in the Old Testament, we will see... That God had been putting a plan together. These other men from Bethlehem are a part of this. So, we are going to first look at a Redeemer from Bethlehem. Maybe even as I say that, you know what book of the Bible we're going to turn to Ruth chapter 1. Let's look at Ruth chapter 1 together. Ruth chapter 1, we'll just read verse 1 to kind of get the setting or the context for Ruth's story here. We read this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons, uh, the text goes on to describe how Elimelech and Naomi, they flee from... Bethlehem to Moab. And and they've really established themselves as a family to the point that their two sons marry Moabite women. They live there for a decade, and unfortunately for these ladies, the husbands all die. Elimelech and his two sons perish, and so Naomi is kind of left by herself, and she decides, well, I've heard that the famine is over in Bethlehem. I guess I'll return Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, decides to stay in Moab, her hometown, but Ruth says, I'll go with you. She utters those famous words, where you go, I'll go. Where you lodge, I'll lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that Ruth is making a significant commitment to Naomi here forsaking everything that would be familiar to her and returning back to Bethlehem. She, she is committing to serve the true and living God and to help Naomi adjust to widowhood. So these ladies return to Bethlehem with no one to protect them, no one to provide for them. Uh, it falls upon Ruth to kind of be the provider then, and she goes basically uh, picking up scraps in the field. It's called gleaning. Ruth goes to fields and she's gleaning. And as the Lord would ordain it, she ends up in the field of this man named Boaz. And after just one day of gleaning in Boaz's field, Ruth comes home with a huge haul of barley to the point that Naomi is astonished, like, what in the world? How did you get so much barley? I'm not used to seeing this amount from someone who's gleaning. Wh- whose field did you glean in today? And Ruth replies, well, the field of a man named Boaz and Naomi breaks out in praise to God and utters this statement about Boaz that this man is a close relative of ours one of our redeemers and in referring to Boaz as a redeemer what Naomi is doing here is alluding to this biblical concept of redemption In the Old Testament, there were occasions when people would sell their property or even themselves into like a type of servitude when they needed some money, right? We understand this. Sometimes we liquidate things just to get some quick cash. People would do this to pay off debts or get some money, but unfortunately, the long-term consequences of that would be that they had no land of their own. Maybe they were someone else's servant now, and so God allowed uh, for the provision of these people to be redeemed by a relative of theirs. This relative could purchase the land they had sold or buy them out of slavery. In Ruth's case, her redeemer would actually have the responsibility of marrying her, and because she had no children, her redeemer would have to continue Ruth's first husband's line instead of his own. Redemption in the Old Testament is a wonderful thing, but I do want you to notice this key point. Redemption comes at a cost to the Redeemer. It was expensive to purchase someone else's land or buy them out of slavery. Maybe the cost wasn't even monetary in Boaz's case. It would come at continuing the line of this deceased first husband before his own. Back to the story, though, Naomi says, Ah, Boaz, this guy. Is our redeemer. She puts this plan in motion in which Ruth essentially proposes to Boaz uh, and asks if she if he will redeem her. That's an awesome plan. However, there is one problem. You guys all know this. There is someone who's a closer relative than even Boaz someone who would have that right of redemption first. And so the next day, Boaz goes to the gate of the city. He talks to this closer relative and says, hey, Naomi's selling some property. Are you interested in buying it? At first, he replies, yeah, totally. And Boaz says, well, just so you know, when you buy this field, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite woman. And in marrying her, you have to perpetuate her line instead of yours. And the guy gets cold feet and he says, "Uh, I don't think I'm interested in the field anymore. To which Boaz gladly steps in, redeems Ruth and Naomi, provides a really just a place of refuge for these women. When before Boaz entrance into their lives, they were destined towards a life of hard work, just barely scraping by, no one to care for them. Right? And in thinking about this awesome story of Boaz, we have to consider the redemptive work of one of Boaz's descendants, Jesus. We can't miss the parallels here. You and I, like Ruth, were in a helpless condition, one that we couldn't deliver ourselves from. Ruth, into life, work, and poverty because she had no husband to take care of her, but you and I were in a much worse place in our lives. We were spiritually impoverished because of sin. Every one of us had broken God's law. There was a wedge that was driven between us and our creator. There was a gap that could not be spanned in and of our own strength because of our sin. Scripture speaks about our relationship to sin in terms of bondage. It says that we were enslaved to sin. Our sins were deserving of the judgment of God. And unless something changed every day brought us closer to eternal condemnation. This is the condition that all of humanity found themselves in. To to quote the song that a lot of us know, we stood neath a debt we could never afford. And the whole of the scriptures is painting this picture that we are in serious trouble. We, like Ruth, need a redeemer. We need someone who could pay our sin debt and rescue us from this terrible predicament. And so, one glorious day, an angel appears to this man, Joseph, with some welcome news for weary people. And he says, Hey, Mary, your fiance, she's pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. She is going to have a son. You shall call his name. Jesus, this name is significant. It means Jehovah is salvation. What is he going to save us from? Jesus will save his people from their sins. When Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, finally gets to speak again after the whole pregnancy being mute, these are the first words out of his mouth in the Bible. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Jesus is here. He's the Redeemer. This is what he's come to do. So how would Jesus redeem us? How would he save us from our sins? Well, Jesus, in his own words, said this about himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom there communicates that a payment or a price must be paid very much like the redemption price that we see in the Old Testament. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Other texts of Scripture put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. We're told, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers— There's the word ransomed again. How are we ransomed? What's the price? Peter continues by saying, we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. From the outset of the Old Testament, when God introduced the Levitical law, he made provision for sins to be atoned for by the blood of a sacrificial lamb. And Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God whose shed blood doesn't just cover our sins. It forgives him. He's the Redeemer who rescues us. The blood of Jesus cleanses us from sins once and for all. We're going to look at Revelation now. I have it on the screen for you here. We just looked at this verse last week in Sunday school, but John has this vision in the throne room of heaven of people singing to Jesus. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And really, this is the reason we're celebrating Christmas. Because Jesus came into the world to ransom, to redeem people. We remember during this time of year, especially, that we were once like Ruth. We were in a hopeless situation, destined for judgment, helpless to deliver ourselves, incapable of following God's law. We were enslaved to sin, but a Redeemer came to liberate us. And now there's no fear of condemnation. The price has been paid by the blood of the Lamb. We can have peace with God and hope of eternal life. And as we think about some of the parallels between the story of Ruth and our own lives and Boaz and his small act of redemption that mirrors the greater redemption of one of his descendants, we can't help but just stand in awe of what God is doing here and tying the scriptures together. And really, I can't put it any better than one scholar put it. I'll put it on the screen for you as we finish this first section here. He said, Jesus was not the first Redeemer from Bethlehem, but he was the greatest. And I hope that as you think about the story of Ruth and as it anticipates the arrival of this Redeemer, your heart just wells up with love for Jesus Christ, knowing at what cost He freed us from our bondage to sin. We're going to sing about that now. We come to another Old Testament character also from Bethlehem. And in order to kind of pick up his story, we need to look at the end of the book of Ruth. No need to turn there. I will have it on the screen for you. Ruth and Boaz get married. They have a son. All of the women of the city gather together around Naomi. They're just so excited for her. These ladies actually get to name this new baby, which is kind of interesting to me. But we'll pick up right in that naming process. And here's what we read at the end of the book of Ruth. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You see where this is going? Ruth is the great grandmother of perhaps the greatest king of Israel, David. David's also from Bethlehem. When his story picks up in the Bible, it's really humble beginnings, right? We know, and Samuel comes to the city of Bethlehem on God's command to anoint the next king of Israel. So he goes to the house of Jesse, and seven of Jesse's sons line up before Samuel, and maybe Samuel's thinking to himself, okay, it's probably the firstborn here, and God says, nope. And he works down the line, and God says no to all seven of his sons, and Samuel's like, Uh, Do you happen to have another one somewhere? And uh, Jesse's like, actually, yeah. There's the youngest, David, out in the fields. He's a shepherd. And you know, here comes David in from the fields, and God says, he's the one that will be the next king. Here's David, this humble shepherd boy from Bethlehem that God chooses to be the next king. When we think about David the shepherd, he gives us a really good picture of what a shepherd did. On the one hand, they have to be incredibly brave people. Uh, From David's own personal testimony, he says, there were times when lions and bears came to attack my flock, and I personally fought them off and killed them. I mean, can you imagine the type of bravery or self-sacrifice required to stand between a lion and a hungry sheep? Unbelievable. Also from David, we see there is a tender side to shepherding. It is David who pens the well-known Psalm 23 in which he describes God as being his shepherd leading him beside the still waters, meeting his every need, walking with him through the valley of the shadow of death, fearing no evil, being comforted by God's rod and his staff. Even when David became king, I find it really interesting that one of the psalmists refers to David's reign in terms of a shepherd. This is what he had to say about David's reign and God's choice of him. He says, "'He,' speaking of God, "'chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance.'" With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with skillful hand. It's just really interesting to me that David's reign is described in terms of shepherding. And when we think about David shepherding the people of Israel, perhaps we think about the protection that he provided for them. No story more famous than David killing Goliath. And delivering people from the hands of the Philistines. We know that throughout David's reign, he subdued Israel's enemies. Maybe we think about the way David shepherded his people politically. We see here at the end of the psalm that he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand. There's another passage of scripture that says about David's reign that he administered justice and equity to all his people. Maybe we think about David's spiritual shepherding of the people of Israel bringing the ark back to Jerusalem, initiating the rebuilding of the temple. Maybe we think about David being described as a man after God's own heart. We think of David who penned half of the Psalms that we have in our Bible. And from David's example, we would conclude about a shepherd that on the one hand, they are fierce protectors of those that are entrusted to their care. They will put their life on the line to save a sheep, and on the other, a shepherd is incredibly tender and loving and kind. And as you think about David, the shepherd, and what he did for the people of Israel, there's kind of a longing in our hearts, huh? Man, it'd be pretty awesome to have someone shepherd us like this. This is a pretty awesome spot to be. When your ruler is described as a shepherd. There's security and provision and rest. Well, the Old Testament doesn't leave us hanging on this very point. After David's death in the book of Micah, Micah actually prepares us for another shepherd to come. In Micah chapter 5, he says, but you... O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Notice this verse. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Can you imagine a Jewish person hearing Micah make this prophecy and think to themselves, we've already had one shepherd ruler from Bethlehem, and he was pretty awesome. You're telling me there's another one coming? Yeah, there is. We, of course, know that this prophecy about a shepherd being born in Bethlehem refers to Christ and i want us to consider one of his exam or excuse me one of his titles the good shepherd found for us in john chapter 10 let's turn there together for this section john 10 In John 10, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. We'll see that right away in verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And maybe you're pausing and asking yourself, what makes a shepherd good? Jesus tells us in the very next sentence, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We were just talking about David putting his life on the line for his flock when lions and bears came to attack them. Here Jesus is saying, I'm a good shepherd because I laid down my life for the sheep. We'll pick up in verse 12. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know my own, and my own, or excuse me, just as the Father know me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Let's jump down to verse 27, where Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. A couple of things stand out to me as we think about Jesus, the shepherd. First, Jesus says a handful of times in this passage of scripture, he lays down his life for the sheep. If you want to know how much Jesus loves you, look to the cross and see your shepherd hanging there for you. Jesus did not abandon us in our time of greatest need. He wasn't one of these hired hands who skirts out of there when things get hard. He didn't leave, choose the route of self-preservation and say, you guys figure it out for yourselves. Jesus, the shepherd, puts his own life on the line to save us. I'm reminded of Isaiah 53, in which we're called sheep in this passage of Scripture, and Jesus does this. It said of him that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Our shepherd went to such great lengths protecting us that he took our sins on himself and was crushed instead of you or me. Secondly, from this text of scripture, another role of Jesus's shepherding us is that he holds us securely. Jesus says that he holds us in his hand. Our salvation is secure. I didn't read it, but he says that we're also held in the Father's hand. We're doubly secure, and no one can snatch us out of his hand. Not the devil, not the false teachers, not ourselves. If you are in Jesus, our shepherd's hand, you are secure. We can look at other passages in which Jesus's shepherding heart manifests itself. When he looks at the crowds and he's moved with compassion. Why? Because they're like sheep without a shepherd. It's Jesus who tells the story of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go and track down the one sheep who was lost. And what Jesus is demonstrating for us is that he came to save even the sinners and the tax collectors. This is the kind of shepherd that he is. And as you think about our shepherd and you see him go to the cross for you, you see him holding your salvation secure, You see that he would put his life down so that we might be saved. Can you trust him to shepherd your life now? Can you trust this shepherd to help you navigate the hardship and difficulty and uncertainty of this life? Is there really any trial he cannot lead you through? Like David, can you echo those words, the Lord is my shepherd I lack nothing. I wanted to end this section talking about Jesus, our shepherd, by considering yet another text from Revelation. And for a little bit of context, the verse we're about to read picks up with a group of believers who have been delivered out of what is called the Great Tribulation, a time of intense suffering. We don't exactly know what they're going through, but these people come and stand before Jesus and listen to how Jesus ministers to these people. Revelation 7:17 7, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Isn't this an awesome picture of Jesus? The lamb who is simultaneously the shepherd Here are these people coming out of a time of immense hardships and trials only to stand before their shepherd and that all melt away and to know that for all of eternity they are secure under the watchful care of this shepherd. Even the wording of this text brings to mind some of that Psalm 23 imagery leading them or guiding them to springs of uh, living water. What an awesome picture of Jesus. And it is this same Jesus who right now, Peter says, is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. If you're a follower of Jesus, let me encourage you to keep trust in your shepherd. To keep entrusting your soul to his care. Life is hard. We get it. But Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And if you don't know Christ, I hope you've seen in these first two instances that Jesus is worth following. David was a pretty good shepherd. Jesus is a better one. He offers the invitation to come to him, all who are weary and burdened, and he will give you rest. Let me encourage you to come to Christ. Find him to be a good shepherd Our final stop in our journey through Bethlehem this morning will consider Jesus's role as king. And in order as we've done the last two times we'll begin in the Old Testament in order to see the coming king anticipated we again look to the life of David. There was a point in David's life when God made a covenant with David. A covenant is a promise, an agreement of sorts. And God told David, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to deliver you from your enemies. But the most important component of this covenant is found in 2 Samuel 7, when God tells David, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And God, in making this promise to David, is saying, David, one of your descendants is going to rule forever. We've already considered Micah 5 once already today pertaining to Jesus the shepherd. I want us to look at it again and just consider the first part of that promise. We're told someone else from Bethlehem is coming like David, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This is 700 years before the arrival of Jesus Christ. And you look at the rest or other prophets, Micah isn't the only one talking about this descendant of David. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they are all pointing towards the New Testament and saying, there is another king, there is a descendant of David who is going to fulfill the promise that God had made to David all those years ago. And so when you open up to the first page and the first verse of the Old Testament and you see these, of the New Testament, excuse me, and you see these words, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David there should be like a neon sign going off in your mind, pointing at David and saying, excuse me, pointing at Jesus and saying, he's here. The king that the whole Old Testament has been pointing us towards has been born. Regarding Jesus' kingship, I want us to look at how Gabriel introduces Jesus to Mary when he comes and gives her the news that she's going to be pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are some words that mirror the promise God had made to David so long ago. In Luke chapter 1, Gabriel says this to Mary, You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Do you see how even Gabriel is mirroring some of the language that God had told to David like a thousand years prior when he told him, David, one of your descendants is going to rule forever. Gabriel says his kingdom, there will be no end. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And in Matthew chapter 1, when Jesus' genealogy begins, you see David. A couple of verses later, Boaz and Ruth and Obed and Jesse are mentioned, and there should be light bulbs going off. This is one big story. The whole of the scriptures is pointing us towards the arrival of this Redeemer, this shepherd, this king. And he's here. And it's him that we're celebrating this morning. I want us to go full circle now and consider Jesus's birth in Bethlehem. We've considered already a couple of other guys, Boaz, David, they're also from Bethlehem. But Jesus, Micah said, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And perhaps we're thinking to ourselves, well, that's a pretty easy prophecy to fulfill, right? Likely Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem. That's where Jesus is born. Okay, check that one off the list. However, that's just not true. Mary and Joseph, at the time of receiving this prophecy from Gabriel, they live in Nazareth. Anywhere from 70 to 90 miles north of Bethlehem. So in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled, something's got to get these people down to Bethlehem. And so in the opening words of Luke 2, something that we probably gloss over a fair amount of times when we read that there was a tax over the whole world, Caesar sets the ball rolling. He says, hey, you know, maybe he's likely the most powerful man in the world at the time. I'm gonna take a census. I'm gonna tax everybody. Part of that tax requires people to go to their hometown. So Joseph, being a descendant of David himself, returns to Bethlehem. And it is not until they get there that Jesus is born. So what do you think about this whole story? Is Caesar in charge, even in Luke 2? No way. There is a powerful God who for thousands of years has been prophesying the coming Christ. Do you think he's going to let 80 miles get in the way between him and Micah being fulfilled? No way. He gets Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem in time for Jesus to be born, as the Scriptures said. The whole of the Scriptures It's interconnected. It's one big story and we can see God at work behind the scenes making these things happen. So regarding Jesus' kingship, he's first introduced as the king of the Jews, I think in Matthew, and it's always been met with hostility. From Jesus' birth, Herod catches wind that king of the Jews has been born. And how does Herod respond? With worship and adoration? No, he says about trying to kill this king. So he has all of the kids in Bethlehem and in the surrounding areas, two years uh, old and younger, put to death. Jesus escapes. You can't stop this plan. At Jesus' death, the sign that hangs over his head on the cross says, King of the Jews. And Jesus dies, leaving a really big question in our minds, right? How can someone rule forever if they're dead? How is this going to be fulfilled? But by this point in the biblical narrative, we should have enough trust in prophecies coming true that Jesus' death doesn't even pose a problem to us. And we know three days later, Jesus rose from the dead proving he has victory over the grave, that our sins can be forgiven, that he has paved the path for us to follow in a resurrection just like his, if we will but bow our knee in humility and repent of our sins and follow him. And where is Jesus now? Ephesians puts it this way. Speaking of God, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Jesus is in charge of everything. And we know from Philippians that one day every knee is going to bow to him. Notice this passage of Scripture. We read it just today in Sunday school. The book of Revelation also portrays Jesus as a king. Revelation 11.15 says this, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, hearkening back to the language that God had told David in 2 Samuel. One of your descendants is going to rule forever. In Revelation, we're told Jesus rules forever. Revelation 19.16, Jesus is called King of kings and Lord of lords. He is superior to all else. And what kind of kingdom should we expect Jesus to be in charge of? What does that look like? Well, Revelation isn't silent on that either. In a description of the new heaven and new earth, we read this, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former Things have passed away. This is what we should expect when Jesus is king. Man, this is awesome. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Jesus reminds all of us of his connection to David when he says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is showing us again, I'm connected to David. The scriptures have been anticipating me. Three times in this last chapter, Jesus says, I am coming soon. We're celebrating today and this Christmas season, the first coming of Christ when he came to redeem us. But at Jesus' second coming, he is coming as king and he is coming to reign. And I hope that hearing about this future kingdom of Christ just causes your heart to well up with anticipation of this day. Because if you're honest, it doesn't take us long for us to look around at this kingdom and say, this isn't one that I want to be a part of for very long. We can see through the lie that this world is selling us. We know that it promises pleasure and joy, but it's empty. We only know leaders who are hired hands. We only know people who are in it for themselves, who flee when hardships come. This world is full of sin and hurt and suffering and death. It's not a kingdom you and I want to be a part of for very long. And so our hearts long for the day when Jesus returns as king. And he makes all things new. And it restores things to how he intended in the garden. And so as we celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world, and as we think about his roles of redeemer and shepherd and king, let's not only long for that future day that we will see his pierced hands and feet, but let's start living in anticipation of that day today. Let's start pursuing holiness and Christ likeness. Let's not be caught off guard when he does return. Let's live faithful lives while we wait. And if you don't know Jesus... The invitation at the end of the book of Revelation stands to you. Come and take the water that has no price. Jesus died, and it's a free gift for everyone who would just believe in him. Repent and come to Christ, this king, today.